Have you ever wondered why some young people choose to end their lives? Ever wondered who they are and who they left behind? Have you ever wanted to hear their stories? Would you like answers to these questions and many more? Welcome to Suicide Pages with Dr. Lulu. Her mission is to shine light on these young people, create awareness for, and educate the world on youth suicide. Opinions expressed in this podcast are those of Dr. Lulu and her guests. They are not a substitute for professional advice. If you are experiencing suicidal thoughts, call 1-800-273-TALK or send a text to www.crisistextline.org. Now, here's Dr. Lulu. Hi everyone, this is Dr. Lulu, your favorite momatrician, board certified pediatrician and mom, author, blogger, all of those things that end with ER. But today it's not about me. Today is about suicide in the world. We're having, you know, when I call them unicorns, you guys know they are males, right? When I say unicorns, unicorn, you guys know that they are black males. How about a unicorns, unicorns? unicorn okay that's what we have today as our guest his name is dr tyler randall black he's from canada yes and he is an emergency psychiatric unit physician let me say that again for those at the back he's a suicidologist a child and adolescent psychiatrist and he works in the emergency room ish for those who are critical who have been critically affected so if anybody has seen Suicide in all its ramifications is this gentleman. But I digress. I'm going to let him say the rest and fill us in. Dr. Randall Black, thank you so much. Tyler Randall Black, thank you so much for finding me on, on Twitter, for accepting to be my friend on Twitter. And I see you, I hear you, I recognize you always in the forefront of the fight. I love it. And I don't go on Twitter as much as I could. I don't care. I mean, there's only so much you can do, so many hours in a day, but you do, my friend. So for that, we thank you. Welcome to Suicide Pages, sir. Thank How you, are you so doing? much for having me. I'm so honored to be on. I've listened to prepare for this. I've listened to your podcast. I've gone through most of the archive, uh, and I love the energy that you bring to it. Um, again, just to, to put it out there, you know, one of the most important things you do is is bring an underrepresented group um, to the forefront. Um, you know, you've talked about unicorns, unicorn with respect to me being a physician of, of suicidology. At the same time, um, you're you're in the unicorn category because there aren't many um, black females who are having a voice in pediatrics generally, and then you're spe speaking into a space that even fewer people go to. Uh, so I'm just more than happy to be on. Um, one of my goals in being an overrepresented under minority uh, is to amplify voices like yours. And I'm just so happy to be on. I love the phrase to amplify voices like yours. So essentially you are the wind beneath everyone's wings. And, and why not? Why not? What kind of legacy do you want to leave in this life? If not one of change, human change, 
change yeah. that would last and last and last. And, and for that, we thank you as a, as a group of people who indeed are haunted. We're still being haunted, H-U, and we are haunted, H-A-U, by just the things that have been happening in the world. So I definitely, definitely appreciate you, sir. Thank you yeah. so very much. Now, if you've listened to the podcast, you know I don't have specific questions. I don't have anything to ask per se. I just let the dialogue kind of just give birth and we just and we just kind of go from there. So where do you want to start talking? Where do you want to start talking? Well, the two, the two main areas that I focus on the most when I'm doing advocacy with suicide is making sure that we have a larger conversation about demedicalizing suicide. Um, there are huge cultural uh, risk factors. Um, there's really big... Um, uh, cultural risk factors with respect to what what influences suicide, non-medical factors, and even non-psychiatric factors. The assumption that everybody who dies by suicide had a mental illness is, is such a faulty assumption. Uh, we know that, for example, chronic illness influences suicide risk. We know that, for example, um, being a victim of child abuse increases suicide risk. Neither of those things require psychiatric solutions or even medical solutions. They require entire society changes. Uh, so, you know, I work in the space of everybody consults me when someone's at suicide risk and I go in and I do my deep dive and I talk to the patient and I talk to the family and I see everything that's going on. And maybe I do identify a psychiatric risk factor or maybe I don't, but I also identify a ton of cultural risk factors, a ton of school risk factors, a ton of family risk factors, um, intergenerational trauma or even current trauma. Um, and and to, to try and be the psychiatrist who's going to either hospitalize, medicate, or therapy away those problems is an unrealistic burden. So, so that's, that, you know, um, it, it's, it's really, um, you know, it's boiled down to, we've, we've already touched the topic of race. It's boiled down to, you know, from the suicidology point of view, people are generally unconcerned about black females because they're so less likely to die by suicide. And yet you and I have both known black females who are suicidal. And so even the even research can take us away from risk categories that we need to be focused on. Um, I, I, I will usually say something like, I myself have not experienced strong suicidal risk, but if you diagnose me with uh, Lou Gehrig's disease, uh, I might change my opinion on suicide. Um, and, and so to even try to avoid suicidality is such a fool's errand. What we really need to be do is, is making life better for all human beings in the world. I love your intro. I mean, this is definitely going to be a good one, y'all. This is going to be a good one. You touched on a few things that I touch on all the time. The fact that 58 or more percent, nearly 60% of people who die by suicide did not have a recorded mental illness. When I was suicidal, before that, I did not have a recorded mental illness, but I did have divorce. I did have mm -hmm. bankruptcy. I did have a sudden becoming a single mother syndrome, if that's such a word. I did become a military commander in the US Air Force. Uh, yes, I was suicidal because I was overwhelmed. Right. Now yeah. the final pathway is hopelessness, despair, helplessness, which you could put depression if you like. It might be a little splash of, I don't know, salt yeah. in the mix. But fundamentally, I still don't have depression. Right. But I did walk on the edge of suicide. I saw it. I looked it in the eye. I acknowledged it. And so I thank you for throwing that light, which a lot of people don't realize. And unfortunately, I know you live on the flip side of the pond, but it doesn't matter because you hear the news of people that die 
by suicide or worse still people that kill other people and the first thing they run to is mental illness i'm like wait what about society and this yeah. past weekend i got a chance to speak at an event that was about slavery and my topic was um the lingering effects of slavery on on health disparities in black people and i was like how many hours do you have for that mm -hmm. kind of talk because it is so much but you touched on that non-medical non-psychiatric cultural yeah you know in so canada we have a, a similar group um you know we don't have the legacy of, of slavery although definitely um there was a lot of mistreatment uh there was a lot of mistreatment of of black people in canada uh we don't have the same legacy of slavery but we do have a large indigenous population um that uh that received a lot of the uh social injustice uh, a lot of the uh, colonialization and a lot of the uh, substitution of culture uh such that um you know often when i'm hearing uh you know, I, I don't want to make an equivalency, but when I'm hearing some of this, this, the challenges that that Black people have in in America, um, obviously there's some shared with Canada. I also think a lot about uh, the uh, Indigenous populations of Canada, uh, First Nations, Aboriginal, and Métis, uh, that have uh, just uh, endured generations of of uh, um, uh, systemic discrimination that can. Yes, I love that. I love it so much. You know what I see in our future, Doc? I see a book titled Social Injustice and Suicide. Let's talk about it. I see a book in you and I's future because this is so true. A lot of people, they're quick to, to think, okay, well, I'm not depressed, so I can't be suicidal. But like you said, let me give you, and I told a young man who was like a 25-year-old who had asked me a question. I told him, I said, let me give you a fracture. And I have to leave you at home, in the, at home for six to eight weeks, or maybe even ten weeks, because your fracture is not healing. And let me come back after eight weeks, and you tell me if you're not depressed. Mental illness eventually will run side by side with physical illness, and we have to acknowledge that sometimes the chicken comes before the egg. Sometimes the egg comes before the chicken. And so, ending up on the doors of suicide doesn't mean anything except multiple factors that have accumulated per person, not necessarily mental illness. But yeah, we have to acknowledge that mental illness plays a role, but not as much as the world would like to think to blame it on that. So I didn't know about Canadian indigenous. I had no idea. I didn't even know that they existed. I knew about the Australians, of course. Everyone talks about the Aborigines, but I never knew that Canadians have that. The indigenous populations of North America um, had had huge systemic discrimination, um, uh, you know, removal of their culture and lands, um, and and still at a point where there is not, not there's nothing even coming close to equality or equity, um, and so um, you, you know often a forgotten voice in, in America um, is the Aboriginal population. Um, certainly in Canada, uh, it's a lot more front-facing. Um, the Aboriginal, um, uh, Aboriginal health and Aboriginal wellness issues um, are front and centre for a lot of governments, um, and, and especially us as, as um, uh, mental health providers. Wow. Thank you so much. So can you tell us about a day in the life of a child and adolescent psychiatrist who works with suicide victims. Can you just paint a day in the life of for us? 
Sure. Uh, first, it's important to know is, is even though I work in uh, suicide, which is a grave topic, I love my job. I love coming to work. Um, I usually come in super happy to see my team. I work with an excellent team here at, at the Children's Hospital uh, where we have, um, I, I love coming to work. I love working with the team that I do, nurses and social workers, um, uh, other other physicians. Um, and I, I don't get to pick my day, my, my day picks me. Um, the crisis, being a crisis physician means that I never know what I'm coming to in the morning. Uh, it could be a severe family issue. It could be a severe um, mental health issue. It could be um, mostly a social issue. Um, but I, I don't really know what's coming through my day. Um, so what I love to do is is hear the stories in the morning and then work through how I'm going to help each individual person. Uh, having this approach has allowed me to really strongly recognize the the pitfalls of being a medical practitioner in a suicide environment uh, because our tools as physicians are limited to hospital treatments, therapies, and medications. And yes. yet what patients need in, in suicide risk um, is, a, is, is a very individualized look at their risk factors. And some of them may have nothing to do with hospitals, medications, or therapies. Wow. Patients need a very individualized look at their treatment plans and their risk factors. That is so true. And the fact that a lot of times the hospital doesn't have all the answers and that is, that's, I guess that's where your social workers come in, right? Yeah, we have uh, two in-house social workers. Uh, their job full-time is to provide staff to, uh, sorry, supports to families um, on the unit, but also to make those connections off the unit. Uh, one of our other advantages to being a, a, a specialized unit for emergencies is, is our average length of stay for hospitalizations um, is, is about two days. Uh, so the idea that um, getting better in hospital um, is the goal is, is never our goal. Our goal is to get them better in their community uh, to make sure that they have the supports they need. Um, some patients do end up staying longer uh, when there's more complex needs, but we meet our mandate of less than five days about 80% of the time. Uh, so we have a very short burst of activity. And, and on, the, on the discharge end, we have an open door policy. Uh, we allow patients and families to contact our social work team or even our doctors uh, well after their discharge with no expiry date. Uh, because we recognize that all of those things that we're doing may or may not happen when we recommend them. That is so true. You know, even with all my talk about suicide, speaking about suicide, this is a, an area that I haven't even given much thought. So this was a needed lesson for me. I had never really thought about, I know it, you know how you know something, but then you're not, you're not thinking about it. And I haven't right. thought about the fact that Yes, they do go to the hospital, they spend a couple of days there, a couple of three days, whatever, and then they go home. And it's just like a person who has been incarcerated recently. After mm -hmm. all the days in the incarceration, when they get out, we must do the necessary legwork to make sure that they don't come back in. So it's almost, they're almost yeah. like two parallels because if they go back to the, their old neighborhood and their old gang, so to say, and their old way of life, it's just a matter of time. It, it's, it's one of those almost a cliche that when someone comes to you in crisis, there's an opportunity for change. 
And if people come to us, um, you know, with a problem that's going to um, last longer than their hospitalization, one of our biggest goals is to start the process of change. And, and that requires making sure that that change, occur, uh, change occurred. So many hospitals, so many doctors uh, will make recommendations, uh, but those recommendations aren't followed up on. It could be because the family was dealing with a crisis and didn't really understand um, everything. It could be because uh, a team doesn't do it on their end that you expect them to do. But making sure that when you, when you um, end your patient-doctor relationship with a family, you're not ending your responsibility for making sure that things go through as planned um, is, is one area that I feel our unit excels in. Yes. Wow. This is so good. You know what? I hope that our listeners, my listeners, the tribe out there are hearing this because indeed I usually say that it takes the patient unit medication from me and then the family support. Do you agree that those three or is there, is there a missing link also? Because those three yeah. are like the pillars for me for improvement of anything, with depression, being bullying, it doesn't matter. I, they need me as a doctor coming from the medication or treatment standpoint, and then they need themselves to be part of the treatment, and then the support group. But it looks like you're throwing in a fourth. A fourth is the society itself. The global society needs to be supportive enough for that person to thrive. Yeah, we we you know we always use medications when it's something that we feel like will be beneficial. Uh, but it's interesting. Some of the things that I'm prescribing, uh, because I usually work with adolescents. Um, are things like have a couple of days off school. Um, you know, that, that can be as prescriptively helpful as, as an emergency medication. Now, where we see depressions and anxieties, absolutely medications are an important tool in our toolkit. Uh, but if I, if I give someone a depression, uh, you know, antidepressant medication and they continue to be bullied at school or continue to have an overwhelmed amount of work to do at school, uh, my antidepressant isn't enough. One of, the, um, one of the sort of examples I always give is if I gave everybody in the world, um, you know, an Ativan, a, a lorazepam uh, to settle down their anxiety, and then I dropped a bear in the room, we'd all still get up and run. Uh, <laughs> medications do not protect us uh, from the, the insults of anxiety, the insults of depression or, um, or distress, uh, what they are intended to do is to treat an underlying condition. Uh, so if, if that's one aim of your treatment, it's certainly helpful. Uh, but we can't neglect the fact that, um, you know, a child struggling in school may need some school relief or a child struggling at home may need some home relief. Wow, that is so true. And I was listening to videos by, I forget the doctor's name in California who did the study on, about ACEs in children and how she was talking about just what you're saying right now, that you could do everything you want to do in the space of 20 to 30 to 40, even to 60 minutes in the office. The follow-up at home, that home piece must be intact. Otherwise, the kids just have continuous stress which now leads to all the long-term health disparities that they find. And then, of course, early, um, early death because of, uh, as a result of the, the ACEs. Wow, this is so true. Thank you so much for, for throwing lights in, in that. And, and a nice, soft, I love your voice. It's very mellow and reassuring. <laughs> I'm, told, I, I'm told I have a soothing phone voice, you but do, I don't absolutely. know. <laughs> I, it was soothing when I was, when I was looking at you and it's, Soothing now when I'm listening to you. I could go to sleep listening to that voice. <laughs> I love it. 
And it's funny, God will give you the tools that you need to do the work that you need to do. And you already said to us that you love your job. Very few doctors can say that. You know, my wife and everybody I know says, they, they call me Uche. And they say, Uche, you have one of the, you know, one of the people that we know that loves what they do. I'm like, yes. I love it so much that if you cut me, I'm going to bleed pediatrics mixed with red blood because I love pediatrics and you should love what you do. But yeah. um, wow. Awesome. Awesomeness. One of the, one of the interesting things about, you know, loving working with suicidal kids is you have to embrace what your role is. Um, many people will give you the role of trying to predict whether or not someone's going to die uh, or to, um, to guarantee that someone is now safe. But we actually, especially in, in uh, psychiatry, we need to be very humble and put ourselves on the other side of the equation of not knowing whether or not someone is going to live or die or not knowing whether or not uh, they're imminently at risk for suicide, but instead looking at the risk factors and the protective factors that make those things more likely. And I'm always trying to pull myself back to the things that I can do. Because if I leave myself with the responsibility of prediction, well, I'm just setting myself to burn out because I have no idea. I have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow. Uh, but I can know that if I help someone with their school, I'm going to reduce their risk for suicide. Or if I yes. help someone with their depression, I'm going to risk, reduce their risk for suicide. So when you feel like you have a meaning and a purpose that you can achieve, well, work becomes very fun. But if you, if you walk around suicide risk as if it's this medical legal pitfall where all you can do is fail because you can't predict suicide, uh, then what you end up doing is burning out doing that job. And I know many psychiatrists who, who will refer uh, patients who are too suicidal because they can't handle the risk. It's funny you said that because one of the things I was going to ask you is how do you stay grounded? I mean, what is your self-care regimen? How do you not get sucked in? by, you know, mm -hmm. just having to deal with this kind of thing on a day-to-day -day basis. Indeed, you are a unicorn's 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 <laughs> power because well, very, very I have, I, to pull it off. Sorry, I've, I've been doing this for about 11 years, and, and right. I, I say that it's more than, uh, more than probably 18 or 20 times that I've gone home. I have a, a lovely cat and a lovely wife uh, that I've cried to, uh, that I've shared my, you know, the things that I've experienced. I've seen... You know, obviously working with kids uh, in this area, I've seen some of the worst things that can happen to human beings. Um, but, um, you know, um, that it's really important not to lose that, that power because we're, we're, that emotion, if we don't control it, if we aren't aware of it, if we don't acknowledge it, will drive us to make awful decisions. People who make fear-based decisions or anger-based decisions or, or grief-based decisions will tend to make poorer decisions and if they recognize I'm in I'm in real trouble here I need, need help or today's a day where I need to really focus on self-care um, and so um, I, I just embrace it there are there are many times where I'm overwhelmed um, and you know I've, I've had you know both bad outcomes happen as well as really bad stories come my way but I don't deny that it affects me as a human and I don't try and act like some super doctor um, that um, can just make a clinical decision without letting my biases come into play. Can I tell you that I love you? I mean, have I told you lately that I love you? <laughs> I love the fact that, yes, this is me too. I'm the same way. I do allow it to affect me. I actually do allow it. It needs, yeah. it needs to keep me, it, for me, it keeps me grounded to, to, yeah. to cry with my patients' mothers to not remain stoic. I don't need to remain stoic. Enough of us remain stoic and then we pass the wrong message to them. 
I am very comfortable crying. I will cry with my moms. I will hug them. I will cry with the kids. And I go home and I cry some more. That is the human in me. And then for those who carry the Bible, Jesus himself wept when he needed to weep. And he, he felt sorry when he needed to feel sorry. He showed empathy and compassion when he needed to. He, wasn't, he was all God. He wasn't all godly. He was human as well. And he allowed his human sides to flourish as much as was needed. And I, and I, love, I love that about him. And I generally, my only... Bible says that I teach is the, is the human side of Jesus. That's what I teach about. I want people to remember that he did not pretend to not be human. As much as he could, he showed his human side. And I think there's a reason. If he really did walk, walk on this earth, there's a reason why those human sides of him were in the story. So we need to not skip them looking for the God side when he's like, no, 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 come back. It's okay for you to be afraid. It's okay for you to fall under the cross. It's completely okay. Just get back up and keep going yeah. and ask for help if you need to ask for help. So for me, I am so inspired by his story in, um, in life. And it's only recently that I, I started seeing that connecting those dots and thanking God for the times when I taught Bible study when I was younger, because this is what I was meant to do with that information that I got then. So and, thank you. And highlighting one of the one of the things we know about a therapeutic relationship with kids with adults um, is that they can tell when you're being your genuine self Uh, they can tell when you're um, when you're being true when you're being who you are and that genuineness might be the most important thing in therapy Uh, most studies of therapy will tell us that the actual school of therapy we select is relatively unimportant compared to the genuineness of the physician um, and, and we know that if, for example, religion is important to a family and you share that religion, um, there is no reason not to be genuinely connected to that person. And if, if they don't share your religion, and, and you know, I, I walk through life as someone who doesn't have a religion, but I've never un- invalidated someone's religion. What an important thing to talk about, the philosophy and what we can learn uh, from these cultural importances. Um, and and if I'm genuine and honest with my patients and my families, even in my fears, even in my worries, um, I can't tell you the number of times that I've shared with a family, I too am worried about your child's suicide. Um, These these statements are so genuine that they can be very calming and helpful. Um, And so I always tell doctors to try and be your genuine self. Don't try and worry about what the right face to wear is, because if you're not doing it genuinely, patients and families, and especially kids, will see right through it. Yes, that is so true. No truer words have been said. The need to be genuineness. And that's why I usually say that medicine, to me, will ever, forever remain an art than a science. Because it's not everybody that can pull it off. I mean, I just believe in the artness of medicine. And that's why there are people that are born to be radiologists and people that are born to be me. I mean, I just need to be out there in the war front. I have to be. My personality, my whole being was created to be a pediatrician, to be there for the child and the parent, and more so sometimes for the grandparents even. I mean, just whoever needs to see me today, I just want them to be sent my way. Ironically, when it comes to religion, in recent months, I I basically stopped going to to the Catholic Church completely. I'm a cradle Catholic. I just stopped when I turned 50, no special reason. But I just realized that I'll do, I'm doing better just being more spiritual and just mm-hmm. embracing 
the concept of there is a greater being, I know it, I get it, but I don't need to be in the four walls of a church to express it. And so we are kind Absolutely. of similar. And, and, you bring, and you bring a genuineness um, to the conversations that you've had. Like I said, in our sort of pre-conversation, I've, I've gone through uh, your archive and you've talked with people who've had, you know, survived uh, suicide. You've talked with people who've had suicidal experience and, and you've never held back your genuine self. Um, you've always uh, expressed it in a very compassionate way and nobody can listen to you and not feel uh, that what you're trying to do is uh, be a genuine helper. Uh, and and I, I just, I, I think that's so important. Wow. Please, can you write those words down for a sister in a review? That is so deep. <laughs> so genuine Absolutely. on me keeping it real. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm going to um, dog you until you write that. Oh my God. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. That is one of the reasons yeah. that we do what we do, quite frankly. Just absolutely, and no we, we need we need the science of suicidology to take a little bit of a back seat to the societal issues that are going on, um, because the science is so insufficient right now. Uh, there was a recent study showing that um, of all the risk factors we'd ever, ever have for suicide, uh, we'd miss 50% of the suicides uh, that happen in the world. Uh, we know that 80% of people who die by suicide die on the first attempt. So if we, if we uh, set up this system where we catch everybody who's suicidal, we're going to miss so many people. Um, and, and we have to move away from this model of making it all about science um, when the science is so insufficient. So, um, you know, moving into areas like spirituality, moving into areas like um, how do we connect um, and prevent kids in this world from being abused? How do we right mm -hmm. systemic injustices? Mm -hmm. How do we make sure that people who have medical illnesses get the treatment they need? Mm -hmm. How do we make sure that people who are in pain are in less pain? Um, these these issues are likely not scientific fixes, but rather societal fixes. Wow. You know what? I can't even come back with anything after that. That is so complete. That is so complete. I did not know that piece of statistic about 80% of people who who attempt suicide die in the first attempt. I, I did not die by suicide die in the first attempt. I did not know that. But I do agree. Yeah completely that I don't know that necessarily maybe suicides are more, they probably could be more maybe thanks to other societal ills, but I do know that we are becoming more aware of them, but I still believe in my heart that they are underreported. And so that 80% yeah. number, isn't it funny that of those 80% that we're talking about is still grossly underreported. So we don't know the true number. Yeah. It, it, you know, it, people will always look from the risk equation as to what's there. And rarely do they look to the equation of what's not there. For example, um, we all know that depression adds to risk of suicide, but the large majority of people with depressions don't die by suicide. Yes. Um, oh my and, God. And I love this. And I think I saw there was a tweet you made one time, you wrote one time and there was another guy, you were kind of going back and forth. And I don't know if I ever, if I commented on it or not, but I was so excited when you said that, and I said that on one of my, um, my mono solo cast, whatever they call it, when I said 80 to 90% of people who have depression do not die by suicide. They just yeah. don't want to be depressed. Way anymore. more. It could, it's likely oh, 99. I love 90. you. Oh my God, it's so much. I'm going to have to now, talk to your wife. We have to share you. I love you. It doesn't take away. I love yeah. what you're saying to me, sir. 
I love it. Yeah, it, it doesn't take away the importance of treating depression. No. Because we know that in a large group uh, or in an individual, a depression may be a really central factor that's driving uh, how they feel about themselves or making their life significantly worse. But we also know that depression isn't the only thing that happens when someone dies by suicide. Uh, so, so um, you know, I always worry that these warning sign discussions, like watch out for someone with a depression, um, creates two really negative effects. The first is for the person who has a depression. The first thing to think is, oh my God, I might kill myself exactly. because people with depression kill themselves. And that doesn't the help with the stigma the, already. That's bad. Yeah. And then the and then the second stigma is is if someone dies by suicide, what happens is it leaves this feeling that everybody who cared about them missed a depression, mm -hmm. or everyone who cared about them missed this major mental illness. When we know it could be that they didn't have have a mental illness or that depression wasn't the central risk factor uh, that led to their suicide. So yes. this, this advocacy can sometimes go to the point of actually creating stigma, both for the patient and for people who've had this extreme distressing event happen in their life where someone has either been suicidal or died by suicide. Yes. Uh, so so uh, I'm always trying to pitch this larger community model of suicide because I, I don't want to create more harm, uh, especially when knowing that depression is a risk factor for suicide has never been particularly helpful for me when someone who hasn't been depressed is suicidal before me. Um, so, so just relying on these risk factors as if they're required or they're necessary, we need to zoom in on them, is probably not the way to go. This is exactly why I said when I found you on, on um, Twitter, I was like, I found a gem. Self-spoken <laughs> or not, sir, you are killing it today. No oh, thank you. Like, and, like, and I'm so happy to be on, on, on your podcast to do so. Because, I, I no, hope. But you know, the truth is, it's not often. And, and I guess the book, good book says, he who finds a wife has found a good thing. And, and I dare to say the wife there is a gem, whether it's a partner or a friend or someone that just reflects your philosophy and mirrors your, your thought process and your, and your beliefs. I've never heard someone just, just, all the words I say are the words you're saying today. I can't even articulate, and I'm one person that can't stop talking. I can't even articulate <laughs> how happy I am to hear you say words like, there's more to it. There's much, yeah. much more to it. And I, when people say, well, what are the signs of suicide? I said, well, the first sign of suicidality is there's no sign. <laughs> and then I give them like four different cases of kids that I know, because I talk about kids, that no one thought they would, and they didn't have depression, they didn't have any of that. They just have deep-seated maybe self-loathing or pain that needed to stop and like one block or even just a poor decision in a moment um you know kids can car surf you know get on top of the hood and, and ride the front without thinking about the consequences in the same way i've worked with kids um who have had you know a severe suicide attempt um, where i'm talking to them in the icu uh, and they're recovering and yet when i talk to them they're already at the place of oh my god that was stupid i shouldn't have done that why did i react that way and if I were to clamp down on that kid and say, you know what I need to do right now is hospitalize you and, and, and treat you with a medication, I'd be missing the fact that they're already where I want them to be, yes. recognizing, that, recognizing that that was a momentary lapse in judgment, yes. that what they really need is support around what's happened and for love. them. Oh, 
you know, and, and so it, it'll be a regular occurrence that someone will come to, to our hospital and we'll see them in the ICU and we'll be discharging them the next day, not because we're not worried about them, but because we're matching what they need to what we're giving them. And if, if you know, parents who are really worried say, you need to hospitalize my child, we need to sit down and, and explain to this parent why hospitalization may actually add harm. It, it's a traumatic place to be. It takes away their rights. It doesn't match them where they is. A hospital is one of the worst places to deliver therapy. Um, so, so having that conversation, even in the ICU, is possible uh, when you recognize that you know what the what the person is is going through may not need what you have to offer in the hospital. And that is why one of the reasons I say my primary avatar are not my patients; it's their parents. And then people look at me like, "What?" I say, "Yes." If I can get the parents to number one, understand. Well, first of all, know their kids, read their cues understand the cues and communicate with them verbally and non-verbally, half of my patients will not come to see me. And so when they come yeah. to see me and I'm focused on the parents for the first three visits, they are mesmerized. I'm like, yes, I need you to get it. Then maybe, just maybe we can, we can work on and anything. What else. have you found to be most helpful in, in um, when you're talking with parents uh, that has allowed them to contain that distress? What, what has sort of been your most uh, helpful move or uh, how have you been able to engender that sense of one phrase there's only one phrase yeah. remember your teen years is my permanent phrase that works and i make mm -hmm. them take about three minutes to think about the one thing that they wanted from their parents the most when they were teenagers almost yeah. all of them come back and say validation understanding exactly allowing me to be me. And I'm yeah. like, okay, well, that has not changed. Your teenager, teenagers have yeah. not changed over the years. The, the, the word teenage years represent the same thing in the 40s, in the 20s, in the 1800s, exactly. and today. But the parents is what I need to remember, your teen years. When I was a teenager, all I wanted was for my mom to just, I was just one of these free birds that just, I can't even put it in words. I wanted to just, yeah. like, I can only think of Florine Maria when I think of how I wanted to just run and just sing and just be free. And I needed and, them to see that, but they didn't. And did so, you need control? Did you need someone to clamp down and no, take away phone no. privileges or take away uh, going out to see friends? Did you need uh, someone to tell you what to do? No. Uh, and fact, you know the funny thing? I didn't. But I'm, even with my first two sons, I wasn't that the same parent that I am today. Yeah. And, it's not, it's, and it's not unrelated to the patients I've had that have come to see me consistently with depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation. And I started asking myself, what am I missing? And then the more I yeah. speak about it, you know, when they say, you, where you teach, you learn twice. When I said, I Absolutely. Teach, and, and learning about it more, I'm like, this is it. This is the key. When I was a yeah. teenager, what did I want the most? All the teenagers, they're like nodding really ferociously. And all the parents are like shaking their heads. They're like, no, 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 no. You need yep. to remember that. And just maybe. And then they come back and they tell me, Doc, I tried it and it worked. I'm like, the child didn't yeah. need any medication. Did they know? I said, that's the answer. Yeah. And, and even when we look at the, um, you know, what psychiatry has to offer now, one of the cornerstones of, of a therapy that works for young people who have recurrent suicidal thoughts 
is Dialectical Behavioral Therapy, or DBT. It was founded by Marsha Linehan, who created it. If, if you've ever heard Marsha Linehan talk, uh, she has scars on her wrists. Uh, she grew up uh, with suicidal thinking. And when she became a psychologist, and this is such an important um, such an important thing to consider. This person who was suicidal and in and out of hospital and labeled with a bunch of labels uh, came out, got a PhD, uh, went, went to help others with their story, and ended up creating the thing that they knew they were missing in therapy. Um, wow. Marshall had created uh, this container because she knew I need to be able to call someone when I'm in crisis. Office hours don't work for me. So DBT has a 24-hour containment system where you can call your coach at any time. She recognized that I didn't need medication. I didn't need labels. I, I needed to learn how to center myself and how to ground myself. And so she added mindfulness meditation and mindfulness techniques to cognitive behavioral therapy. So, you, you know, if we listen to what we needed when we were struggling and we listen to what people tell us they're needing, um, it, it, it informs so much. Self-injury is so scary to parents, but self-injury is the way that a lot of kids make themselves feel better. So I actually don't want to take away their self-injury. I want to take away the distress that causes their self-injury. Yes. I want to leave the self-injury alone. You're my soul brother. I, I love it. Because <laughs> even for me, when, when I was going through my dark days, what I call them, and every single thing that happened to me, it was just... One morning, it was, just, it was just a bit too much for me. And I just wanted those things to go away. I didn't like the way mm -hmm. I was feeling, but I, just, I was okay until those things came, which is what you're calling yep. depressors right now. And then I went to a place of pain and so much pain that I wanted out. Does it not make sense yep. that if anyone is going to talk about that, it will be me? Like, why not me? Yeah. And so when I, yep. went, when I went viral with my story about depression and being suicidal, of all the support I got, the one person who was kind of iffy was another doctor who said, wait, be careful, don't speak too loud. We don't want the Texas Medical Board to clamp down on you and, you know, right. I don't know, do whatever, whatever. And I was like, you know what, this is my truth. And if my truth scares anybody, then so be it. And then you know what the Texas Medical Board did? They invited me to come and testify at the Capitol in Austin in favor of mental illnesses yeah, and minorities and you know so it's like sometimes you just have to claim your truth and just just live with yeah. your truth because it, it is your your truth you know and to zero to zero in on that because you're someone who is a physician who experienced a suicidal thinking um, we know that physicians have twice the rate of suicide as as veterans and you have both um, and and you know this this idea that physicians uh, should be reported to the board when they have a mental health condition um, is so counter therapeutic. And what it does is it buries people's ability to come forward. Yes. And and if our if our physicians are in a position where they feel like they can never ask for help because they mm -hmm. might lose their license, well, what ends up happening is they take on too big a burden. Um, I, I think medical boards in general have to strongly reconsider how they word things on their licensing applications. Yes. You know, I've, I've checked that box so many times. Have you ever had a mental health condition? And I, I, I check no, because I haven't had a fully diagnosed condition, but I can tell you I've had adjustment disorder in my life. Um, you know, I've, I've and, and should, and, but you know point. what? So shouldn't you have a job? Should you not with the kind of stressful work that we do once upon a time I was married Happily or not, I don't know. I owned my own practice. It was two locations. It was four providers. 
it was over 15 employees. And then I had three children that I wanted to breastfeed and be there for them to raise them. And then wait, I had an abusive marriage. And wait, I'm a Nigerian black female. We're not supposed to get divorced because then you're, you're mocked by the devil. I had all these stressors. Yeah. Something had to give. So I sacrificed yeah. my marriage because something had to give. So yeah. do you think if, if you came to me and, you, and everything you said to me, except you're a doctor, what would I recommend for you? I will recommend therapy, medication, taking a break, blah, blah, blah. Yet I'm not supposed to get that for myself because I'm a doctor. You know what I mean? Like, it's the whole yeah, exactly. system is messed up. Exactly. And, and, and there's, fortunately, there's been a little bit more of a recognition in some boards. Boards, but um, you know it, it still remains so problematic uh, because even if the boards are moving a little bit, the perception by doctors inside the system is that you never want to talk to your medical board about anything. You never want a letter from the medical board, um, and you, you got one, and it was to invite you to a conference. But I'm sure when you got the call and it said we're with the medical board, the first thing you thought was, "Oh no, am I in trouble?" <laughs> no, um, actually, well, no, because it came, it came differently. It came from another doctor. Okay, good. <laughs> yes, it came from another doctor who reached out to me on Facebook saying that the oh, good. commissioner, one of the commissioners was looking for me to testify. And then when the Texas Medical Board heard about it, they're like, wait, she's one of us. Okay, let's support her. But the only reason yeah. she heard about me was because I had my story, you know, published in the Texas Medical Journal about, yeah. you know, what I was doing. And you know why I was doing it and all that but you know it's like yeah. either way however I'm just one person that happened to mm -hmm. escape maybe for now I don't know but what about the rest of us and you hit the nail yeah. on the head why would the fact that you're a doctor make you twice as likely to kill yourself than the next worker you're a doctor yeah. though you're supposed to be the one that brings respite for all and helps people get better you know what I mean like so you're right the system is, is messed up and I know I have to look at my time Yes. I have to let you go. It has been amazing. Yes. Please promise me you're going to come back. Please. I will. I will. I will. And, and thank you for doing what you're doing. I, um, I'm so excited to see people moving past, um, you know, a, a medical model. And one of the things that you offer that I just want to keep keep out there is, is nobody doubts that you're you uh you are so genuine and i'm just so so glad to see you in this space i hope i hope what you're doing continues to grow um that we hear more from people um who've been through what you've been through and and while i'm happy to always come on as an expert um you know th those voices are the voices that need uh, the strongest amplification that's right that's right thank you so much ladies and gentlemen Phew, what an hour of power if there was any such thing. Dr. Tyler Randall Black. Love your last name, by the way. Love it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I digress. But you know what? Yes. He came here. He taught us. And I hope we all learned. I know I learned a lot. I kept scribbling and scribbling. Like, like I, I just couldn't get enough of this man who knows a lot. But in the grand scheme of things, still a little. But we'll take it. We'll take it and we'll amplify yeah. it. And then the bottom line is, let's just keep being true, keep being genuine, and keep opening our eyes to see that which is said, and more importantly, that is that which is unsaid. Because there's yeah. a lot of things out there that we are trying to fight on a daily basis, and we just can't because, well, you know, we're not allowing ourselves to open our eyes and see. So when your child is 
suicidal, allow the doctors to tell you that sometimes what they need is a better home front, <laughs> not so much of staying longer in the hospital. I know you're afraid and you're concerned, but maybe you need a better home front. So Dr. Black, do you have any parting words? I mean, you said so much before we let you go. Any <sighs> encouragement, any final words? My, you know, my, my parting sort of words would just be to, to remind everybody listening that there is a really simple intervention that we can do that will likely improve the rates of suicide in the world. And this is to focus a lot on our own personal kindness to other people. Um, we can all play a role. Um, you know, if, if, if you feel like someone is not being themselves or they're in a rut, you don't have to be their therapist. You don't have to understand whether or not they're going to die by suicide. But if you genuinely display Hey, I'm worried about you. Is there anything I can do to help you? Um, that that can that, that that's not going to solve every person's problem, but people who are going through their struggles will assume that you don't want them to burden you with their problems, and you don't want them to add your stress to theirs. So so just reach out every now and then. Check in with someone you care about. Um, I, I can't stress how important it is, especially in our a little bit more superficial days with social media, how important it is to not just ask, how are you? But really ask, how are you? Um, how are things going for you? Yes. Uh, and, and, and everybody can do that. That doesn't require a degree or an expertise or a knowledge. Wow, you are my man because I talk about <laughs> kindness all the time. It's in my book, Kindness yes. and Compassion. It's in my book, which you need to get, by yeah. the way, sir. But you yes. know what, y'all? <laughs> thank you so much. The book is called How to Raise Well-Rounded Children. It's available on Amazon, on my website. This gentleman, Dr. Tyler Randall Black, is available on Twitter. I don't know where else can people find you, but I know you are a powerful force in medical Twitter, in Twitter. Anywhere else where they can find you, sir? Well, I, you know, I'm, I'm contactable. Uh, it's really easy. Just tylerblack at gmail.com. Um, I do have a web presence at tylerblack.com, uh, but um, nothing sold there or anything. It's just a, it's just a place to contact me. Uh, but on, on Twitter right now, I'm doing my hardest to be an advocate at tylerblack32. I want you to know that we see you, we hear you, we read your tweets and we appreciate, we definitely appreciate one who would take one for the team. And so with that, y'all, this is Dr. Lulu. This is Suicide Pages, the podcast. I got to sign out because I got to let our guests go. Thank you all so much for listening. Thanks for the downloads, for the subscriptions, for the comments, for the reviews. Thank you for the five-star ratings. I definitely do not take it lightly. I appreciate y'all. Please spread the word. And if you don't know what to say, don't say anything. Just sit in their presence and just be with them. That speaks volumes anytime. Right, Dr. Black? Absolutely. And on that note, we'll see y'all later. This is Dr. Moon. This is Suicide Pages. Peace.